My name's Mar Hicks. I'm an associate professor of data science here at UVA. I'm going to be moderating, and we have some wonderful panelists today who are going to be discussing this topic. Those panelists are uh, Professor Farhana Farouk, Professor Sarah Leibowitz, uh, sorry, Farhana is also from the UVA School of Data Science, Professor Sarah Leibowitz from uh, the School of Commerce here at UVA, and then joining us remotely will be Professor Larry Metzger, who's a research professor at George Washington University. So to give you just a tiny bit of context for our panel today, I feel like our panel is uh, perhaps one of the most blessed and cursed, right? Because we've all been seeing and hearing in the news all of this stuff about how general AI has recently made these giant leaps and bounds forward as a consumer product. And at the same time, we're also seeing again and again how problematic a lot of these purportedly revolutionary general AI tools and models can be, whether that's due to inbuilt bias or being trained on materials that infringe copyright or tending to produce misinformation or using a lot of energy. All of these things have come up. So we have a situation where we know that artificial intelligence has the potential to change our societies, our economies, our political systems in both intentional and unintended ways. But we also have to be very proactive in this moment about figuring out what we want to happen. And we also have to think long and hard about whether what we want collectively and individually is actually a good idea or not. So with that, I'd like to transition things over to the panelists. And what I'm going to start by asking is if Farhana, and then we're going to go to Larry online, and then over to Sarah. Um, I'd like each of you, if you could, <clears throat> to talk a little bit about the work that you do, introduce yourselves and your work, and then say a few words for a few minutes on how the recent surge in interest regarding quote unquote general AI has started intersecting with your work and how it may have changed your thinking regarding what the future of AI in society might look like and potentially what you hope it will look like. So with that, uh, would you like to start us off, Farhan? Hello, everyone. Um, I'm very excited to be here today. Uh, welcome to the session. Uh, I'm Farhana Farooq, Assistant Professor at School of Data Science. I am in this field, actually, I worked in technology field about 12 years. So as an academia, this is my full-time job, and I'm loving it because I get, my, get the opportunity to work on my research. My research focuses are on human-centered design, AI acceptance and responsible AI. As you can see a little bit connection here with responsible AI and the topic we are going to discuss, certainly. So before I go deeper into all these directions, definitely I would say um, there are some changes coming and it will continue to do so uh, in terms of general AI. Still, we are in the phase of narrow AI, I would say, but you can think of AI or generative AI nowadays. This is like a, this is a big hype around it, especially generative AI. So if I think about as an educator, 
I can definitely see it's a blessings or opportunities. At the same time, it's very challenging to cope up with all the changes. Um, so first of all, as a researcher, I can see this AI can help me to, like think about a brainstorming session when you generate the idea with your colleagues. It can be like you can just interact with generative AI, you can back and go back and forth, it's kind of helpful, which is a good tool. Even in terms of a student's perspective, I can see it could be a great learning tool if it is used properly. I'll talk about the challenges, how and what needs to be done on that part. So definitely I am for generative AI, AI for sure, because as a data scientist in my past job, I know how, how much effort it takes to build an app or AI system. But we just need to careful about not just building an AI system, which works perfectly fine, but need to think about the ethical aspects. That's the challenging part I'm going to dive into now. Uh, being part of the editorial board member in AI Ethics Journal, definitely we see a lot of research uh, around this area, how to make AI, not just AI, responsible one. And to do that, we need to think through from the design to deployment, not just the, we have this machine learning model, just build it and that's it, deploy it. And then that's how it's going to interact with the society. People are going to interact. And then if there is a bias and there is a feedback loop, machine can learn it from there. So it's going to be like a ever ending process. So definitely need to be careful about that. So that's one aspect in terms of, uh, as an educator, we can, teach our students not to be just be, become a data scientist, rather become a data scientist who build the responsible AI and bring positive impact to the society. Definitely that's there. Now the second point, uh, there are a lot of discussion how generative AI is going to change the student's learning perspective because they could use it just to complete their assignments and whatnot. But if we could train them properly in terms of what are the ethical things they need to consider before they use it and how to use it properly, I think that could be really strong learning tool because when they interact with this generative AI, they need to think computationally because they need to give a command so that they can get the output. And that's a skill. And the students, when they are going to join in the future workforce, for sure they need to work with the AI system. So it cannot really prevent them to use it, but definitely it's our duty to train them properly and let them know what is right versus wrong uh, so that they can be educated uh, and then they can use these tools very uh, uh, like a good and definitely the society impact is there. So I think for now, I will stop here and then I can come back to it. All right, well, I think we have uh, Larry joining us online, so let's go over to him. Okay. Okay, uh, hi, um, thank you for inviting me to the uh, this year's event. Uh, I'm currently a research professor at George Washington University in the human technology collaboration doctoral program. Uh, and by the way, we just recently graduated a fantastic PhD student. Um, I was the founding director of the GW Data Science Master's program with my colleague and now your uh, Brian Wright. Uh, I'm also a research professor uh, 
at the uh, University of Vermont. Uh, the other thing that's very relevant to the topic uh, for today is that um, I'm a founding editor of the uh, AI and Ethics Journal, and I'm chair of the ACM uh, US Technology Policy Committee. So we, uh, I'm uh, constantly thinking about uh, the impact of AI on society and how we might have some control over it or some, some influence on it. So um, about my view of the future of AI, uh, the, um, I'm influenced uh, from uh, uh, having lived a long time and experiencing uh, the development of computer science, uh, neural networks, uh, and the traditional field of AI. Uh, of course, today, uh, the term AI is used so broadly uh, that um, uh, we may have to get rid of the term. Yeah, but anyway, there are a lot of uh, overlap with the, with the, the AI as a, as a real field uh, and the way that people talk about it today. Uh, and that's what we're focusing on. Uh, and so one of the things I've seen is sort of the peaks and valleys of uh, disciplines of tools and products. Um, you know, programming languages have come and gone. And uh, it was surprising to my students if I say, well, in uh, 10 years, uh, you know, people may not even use Python. Uh, but, you know, things like that happen. So change is one of the things. Uh, AI will change in the way it's used and the way it's uh, uh, monitored and uh, and so, so that's that's one thing. So I'm anticipating change, uh, and data science is kind of the newest phase of these disciplines, and has uh, helped uh, blur the traditional uh, definition of AI, which is okay, uh, along with the uh, popular press and society. So that's another thing that I'm sort of more real uh, thinking about these days is how. Uh, the perception of these different technologies uh, changes. Uh, uh, sometimes not for, not a good thing, and sometimes it's a matter of people learning more. So uh, generative AI coming out, uh, a lot of people, I'm sure. Uh, well, it was it was the the uh, adoption of the people using it was just uh, amazing uh, how fast it happened, and so it probably caused a lot of people to think about. Uh, AI in ways that they hadn't before. So that's one of those kinds of changes. A new product comes up and uh, people use it. Uh, the other thing is that a lot of things uh, are fun at first or interesting at first, and then uh, people see flaws in it or they just get tired of using it or something. So, you know, usually there's a, a big excitement and then a dying off. It doesn't have to die off all the way, but it, uh, what we're seeing today, the hype over uh, generative AI, for example, uh, may uh, will likely you know uh, diminish uh, before long. Uh, so anyway, this rise and fall of technologies and products is is one of the things that makes me sometimes makes me feel better about the future of AI, and and sometimes makes me a little bit scared. But the big point is uh, sometimes people ask me or, or uh, my people in my family to. Uh, or are you for AI or are you against AI? And uh, it's just uh, not really a very good question. I don't think there's a lot of good things about AI and there are things that are bad already and could get worse. 
So I think the one I'm in favor of is uh, trying to make things happen for the good of society. Uh, and uh, that means smart and timely policies uh, and some careful consideration of regulation. Uh, and then worry about who gets to decide, who gets to decide the future of AI. Is it the society in general or is it the certain uh, parts of society? Uh, so last thing I'll say is that I'm impressed and hopeful about the, a, a movement that's afoot on calling of what's called human-centered AI or human-centered design, that we incorporate the human, uh, the welfare of the human <clears throat> as we conceive a product, as we design it, as we implement it. And then, of course, after it comes out, uh, to make sure that it hasn't, doesn't have unintended uh, flaws. So human-centered AI is what I would say, at least I hope the future is. All right, great. Thank you for that. Over to you, sir. Great. Happy to be with you all and with my colleagues up here. Um, so I am Sarah Lebovitz. I am an assistant professor over at the School of Commerce. And I study how professionals adopt and change in result of using AI or uh, looking at the organizational structures and processes that change around new technology adoption. And my research over the past five years has focused primarily on AI adoption in healthcare. Um, but I think there's a lot of learning that's broader than just healthcare. Uh, I study specifically in diagnosis, which is one of the top fields that uh, has been predicted to be you know, replaced by AI because of the advances in image recognition, the ability for models to predict, um, you know, classify into diagnosis categories. And what I am really interested in around AI is the difference between sort of the hype around it in media and in common conversations, and then what's actually happening on the ground. So I'm a field researcher. I study, I watch people in hospitals use AI. I sit alongside them, I talk to them, and I understand what's working, what's not working, and that is the source of, of my research. And I think there are three kind of themes that have come up. So a lot of times we hear that AI will make you faster, more accurate, and kind of in general more fair or there, there is conversations around you know, less bias or more fair or uh, around that category. So I would say I, I've found that it's much more complicated than those narratives can come across um, because the messy organizational realities where we have humans who have professional norms, who have standards that they have to be held to with um, technical limitations, with cognitive limitations that on the faster front, given that the tools mostly are black boxed and aren't offering explanations, and most professionals require some sort of explanation to stand behind when they communicate their decisions to an audience, in this case, a patient with life or death like diagnosis decisions, um, if the tool is not explaining itself and it gives a conflicting answer, then the professional is spending a longer time, in most cases, trying to come to a consensus that they can report as their final answer. So faster, in, when I see in these critical decisions, not always, it actually can be the opposite, some slower. And then on the accuracy front, it's really, really challenging to know who is more accurate in knowledge contexts. So in radiology, the 
really it comes down to the ground truth. And this is data palooza. So we're talking a lot about data. I care a lot about data and the quality of the data that goes into the machines and trains them. And so with diagnosis, the data that trains the machines is sometimes simply what's available to developers and not necessarily the highest quality data out there. So for example, um, training a machine, training the machine learning to predict cancer in um, mammography, in breast cancer. So they may train based on singular uh, mammogram images and it gets really good at predicting it based on this one image. And they evaluate these predictions based on a human looking at just one mammogram. And they say, hey, our tool can do better than, than the radiologist. But in reality, the radiologist is looking at much more data, much more change over time. They're communicating with the patient. They're using physical touch. They're looking at other imaging to make their assessment in practice. So even though in that like kind of controlled experiment, it may look more accurate, the implementing it in practice, you may actually find that doesn't live up to its kind of research standards. So that's the accuracy. And then around kind of fairness and thinking about data as this thing that you can train the model and it does a great job and you can control for bias. It's again, it's just more complicated. So um, I'm doing a study where they're creating, instead of going out to collect data that they thought they could just go collect ultrasound data to train the model to make um, during pregnancy, like predict fetal and maternal health outcomes, they have to create the data. And this has so many decisions about who to involve, how to collect it, what, who, you know, there's so many layers and it, you realize how subjective the data creation process is. And it often gets conveyed as simply data collection in this very objective and um, clean way that removes bias, but really it's, an, you know, humans are involved with the whole process. So yeah, I'm interested in speed and augmentation, the explainability questions. And I think all of these come up with the question of general AI and then uh, generative AI as well. So um, it just kind of adds to the complexity when the model can produce really compelling verbal evidence. You know, it looks like evidence, but really um, it takes a lot of expertise to know whether it's trustworthy or not. So curious where we're going to go from here. And I think this is a great forum yeah. for these discussions. Thanks for that. So one thing that strikes me uh, listening to all of the comments so far is that there are, there's a lot of optimism in the room, right? As might be expected at a conference like this. But historically, one of the ways that at least I, and maybe it's because I'm a cynic, um, I really like to look at technologies is at the points of failure and breakdown, because sometimes that's when you learn really interesting things about a given system is how it breaks down and just what it can withstand. And especially with infrastructural technologies, whether those are roads or bridges or information infrastructures, when they break down, that's when we really do start to notice specific problems that maybe had been noticed before, but weren't addressed because the system was chugging along well enough. The bridge didn't fall down. The informational infrastructure continued to do what it needed to do for people to get their work done. And I wonder, um, and maybe, maybe you could start us off with this question, uh, Sarah. I wonder if the three of you might spend a couple of minutes each talking about any specific failures or potential failures that you've maybe already seen or you've been trying to mitigate or that you're concerned about seeing in the near future. As you were speaking, Sarah, about your work with healthcare technology, 
I was wondering a lot about, um, you know, in the American medical system, malpractice insurance is a huge thing and it's a huge expense. And I was thinking about with more uh, automation in the mix, is that changing anything that has to do with, um, you know, financial uh, structures in the healthcare industry, which is a, a very, very big and lucrative industry, and um, whether that has anything um, maybe to show us potentially about regulation or ways in which regulation could proceed that might help us get to these better futures we're imagining. And if that isn't something that is really uh, you know, of interest, then please take it in whatever direction you want to. But I'd love to just get some specifics from all three of you about what are some of the you know, specific potential problems and failures that you see coming up in the very near future that um, you feel need to be addressed and potentially you're even starting to address in your own work, in your own teaching. Really fascinating and important. So I can, a hundred things that you've said could, could fuel the rest, but uh, so I think, I think there's, yeah, in, in healthcare specifically. So I think of regulation, uh, it, it's actually encoded in FDA approvals that these tools have to be used as an aid, which have to support an independent judgment by the physician. And that's, I think you could put aside whether, so as a patient, as a healthcare consumer, I think that's great. Like I think having some, a second opinion, have my doctor spend longer on every diagnosis that they make. Make it be a, I come to my own assessment and then turn to the, the tool. But that is not helping the, you know, speed and efficiency that the kind of hospital leadership is wanting to see. So there's kind of the regulatory piece is important, but it, I think it might be temporary. I think it, it could be that as soon as that kind of starts to stretch and move away from this mandated second opinion, there could be some potential for, you know, if, if the tool is not up to what we would consider the physician standard in every case for all types of people, then we may lose there, there's risks to that, but for now the regulation is, is there. And then the financial piece, it's another fascinating and complicated situation because the hospitals don't wanna pay for the tools because it's expensive and the vendors are trying to arrange with the insurance companies that every use of the tool can be billed as a billable expense that can get reimbursed. So in mammography, the existing um, detection software for uh, breast cancer is billable and it's required that it's covered by insurance and, and Medicare and Medicaid. So that has created an incentive to adopt massively, like every, you know, everywhere, this is, this is widely adopted in the US. And it's only because there's this financial incentive. And now that, you know, every physician has the decision of, well, I have to use this because I have to bring in revenue for my unit, even though <clears throat> it may not be adding the value to my practice. So there's financial, and then you mentioned breakdowns, and I think failures um, and the malpractice is really interesting. And I don't know what's to come, but what I do know is if the physician makes a misdiagnosis and the AI tool was correct, that gets recorded in the patient's files, in the, in the electronic records, just like any other information that can be used against them in a lawsuit. So far, it hasn't been the case that it's really um, compelling evidence to create like a malpractice suit, but that could change if these tools become more commonly accepted, if there's more tools 
um, that are you know, widely seen as better than, than humans, and then they disregard it for what seems like good reason on the ground, um, they could be used them against, against them in, in court proceedings and ultimately hurt their reputation. And you know, this could be a good thing to encourage the more use of, of AI that we trust, but there's some caveats to, to whether or not the technology is really what we want to depend on. Thank you for that. <laughs> very, very complex. Um, <laughs> I see you yeah. running away for Ahana. Yes. So, would you like to take this next, and then we'll we'll patch into uh, patch in Larry. Thanks. So, yeah, I really like a couple of points, especially AI acceptance and adoption is kind of same thing. So, AI in terms of AI acceptance, it's really important that you know when you work in a team. So, you and I are a team, right? So, for example, if I do not trust you then as a team, we are not going to be successful for sure. It's kind of same thing as a doctor, and I'm using an AI system, and I do not trust its judgment, or even think about it, okay, let me think why it's saying that. Mm -hmm. Is there anything I am missing? Mm -hmm. If that synergy is there, then definitely the situation is going, going to be much better. Now the question is, why certain group of people or individual don't trust AI, right? That's really an important question. And to answer that, we need to do several things. First of all, I think you have mentioned earlier AI adoption. So you have maybe talked to doctors or you, you have seen it's like a, it's not really uh, explainable enough or transparent enough for them to understand why the decision has been made. I have kind of similar experience right after like when I joined as a data scientist at Children's National Hospital, I was very excited to do certain machine learning model, uh, but first thing I heard, no, we are not using that. And so why is that? Can you tell me why this value is here? Can you tell me like why this is? Because if people I can say, well, this is the significant, that's why we need to use it. So I'm talking about like 2017 at that time, I say, yes, I don't know. <laughs> so definitely transparency, interpretable, those are, it sounds like, yeah, sure, that's like a feature for machine learning model. Sure they are, but the impact is huge in terms of buy in from the user, like the, as a doctor, they are a user, they're using a system for their work and forget about end user, they need that. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you cannot really expect someone, uh, end user without any technical knowledge, you're saying something and it's going to blindly trust it. Sometimes they have these questions, why is that? Mm -hmm. So that's like a significant difference between technology acceptance and AI acceptance. Mm -hmm. Because technology acceptance is a very well-established field. There is a model like a technology acceptance model time for a long time. Now we need to work on AI acceptance because the same model we cannot fit for AI because AI is dynamic, it's just not the technology. It's living, breathing things. Uh, it can interact, it can learn from the environment. So definitely that's my another, that's my research field, like how we can get acceptance from the, or like not just from the end user, the practitioner, right? At different levels of users are there. We need to think through their needs and make the system trustworthy so that we, like as uh, AI and human, can work together to have a, like a better solution and reduce the failure. So that's the concept. So it's fascinating that you have the same experience. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, let's go over to Larry. Okay. Yeah, and thanks for giving us permission to be negative. So <laughs> I've got good examples here. Uh, well, in the news, you know, we hear uh, 
failures of the what, what people call autonomous vehicles, and there one recent one tragic event that uh, in, in, ended up with recalls of, of the cars. Um, so, so that's uh, that's that shapes our, our our acceptance or trust in, in things. That's that's one example there. But it's interesting also that uh, regular cars, not automated, um, are um, you know pretty much accepted. Some people are still scared to drive, at least in some parts of the, of uh, New Jersey. Um, but um, but they get used to it. So so actually, the the record for people being injured and killed in regular auto uh, accidents is is large, and some of those are failures of the cars. But uh, with the new thing, uh, it, it's a real problem for the, for the people making cars. And also, they have to be really careful that they've checked it out, that they're not sort of debugging the system after they've sold it. Uh, and so, so that's, that's an interesting, for, for two reasons. I mean, the fact that, yeah, there's the downside and a danger, but also that's how people become uh, not trusting so, so there are people that would say, you know, I'll never want an autonomous vehicle. Uh, but then others have that have tried them, you know, they, they like it and they're willing to take a chance uh, on the probably small risk of a problem with the ones that are established. Um, and, and that's one reason, too, then in our little world of human-centered technology that we don't like to use the word autonomous, you know, it's, uh, uh, automatic. Um, uh, Automated vehicles as a as a better term, you know, that we add uh, aspects to cars that give it some automatic features, but there's always a human involved in it. And I think that's a theme that goes through a lot of uh, products. Uh, I would say generative AI is like that too. Um, narrow uses of generative AI in a professional setting, maybe with uh, walls so that the data that they have isn't uh, hacked into or used by other people is probably the place that's really useful right now. In the general public, using uh, uh, ChatGPT or something without really any training or knowledge of how to make the best use of it uh, makes uh, for a lot of uh, misinformation just, you know, uh, uh, shared with other people based on the ChatGPT because the people didn't really know how to use it. So. So, and there might be uh, an example too of uh, regulation. And uh, and Sarah, I was noted that you you know pointed out that in healthcare, um, as as we know, you know that things are are very well. They are regulated to a large extent. And so there are other fields where regulation is accepted. And uh, so why not AI? And I wondered if either one of you two would. Want to speculate on why are we so why are we as a society so reluctant to? I mean, a lot of people are reluctant to have regulations uh, when it comes to AI because uh, it, it does produce dangerous objects. So. Yeah, let's jump off that point regarding regulation because obviously that's something that is going to be an ever larger part of any conversation around. AI, whether it's applied specifically or more broadly. And one of the things that we've been seeing in the past few months in particular is there's a race to sort of get um, 
products almost in a, a beta test stage out in front of the public to sort of wow people and say, look, isn't this fun? Isn't this nice? It's not going to hurt you. And that's um, backfired in some ways, but it's also worked pretty well as a marketing campaign. Now, all three of you are experts in the field who have um, done a lot of specific work and research on more narrowly applied AI systems. And I wonder that um, given this moment that we're in, how do you foresee or how would you like to see regulation proceeding in the United States, given the fact that we are in sort of um, a fraught moment where there are narrow uses of AI that are definitely um, things that are being productively explored and should continue to be productively explored. And then the broader context is this sort of rush to market for much more general systems where there isn't necessarily a good um, framework for how they're going to be used, really. It's, uh, it's a sort of a, a, a sleight of hand or an effort at heterogeneously engineering the environment so that there is a large future market for such generalized AI tools. And I see you nodding a lot, Sarah, so if you want to take it first, we can go to you first, or anybody can go ahead and jump in. Yeah, I, I just share your concerns. I'm just I'm nodding in, in like solidarity. I have I, I'm not a regulation, you know, expert, and, and policy isn't isn't my expertise. But I will say that this this rush to market is something that resonates a lot, um, and I think can be, yeah, the accelerated pace of development can lead to kind of overlooking a lot of the things that that are really important for a high quality and safe system, and so. When I think back to and kind of tying Larry's question, think about why we're not regulating AI, I think, I think it so far, and it sort of makes sense in my mind, which is not, you know, there's probably smarter people about policy here, but to, to focus on the context of use. So in medicine, what is AI doing? What are the kind of criteria that we care about and how do we measure in an ongoing way what is safe use over time? Um, I know that when I look at the FDA approvals for what they consider high quality tools, it's not as robust as, as you, you might hope it is. Um, so relying on kind of the domain specific seems to be the model that's going forward, like in driving or in, you know, other contexts like war, you know, uh, weapons and things. So, um, that's, that's my initial reaction, but I do think the speed has a lot of concern. But the more excitement it creates, the more incentive there is to build the tools and build them quickly and get them in the hands of users, which, yeah, it, there's, I just share your concern. Yeah. yeah, and I see Larry was writing as you were speaking, so maybe he wants to go next and we'll go over to Farhana after. Uh, yeah, because uh, now that I've, uh, now from what Sarah said made me think about how with uh, autonomous vehicles, or I'll say automated vehicles. Um, you know, other vehicles, if we look at those, uh, you have to do inspections, you know, the, of the cars as part of uh, being able to be permitted to drive. So that and the idea of auditing uh, and reporting failures and having a database for, you know, uh, where people can read about failures of systems uh, would be not exactly, well, it's sort of regulation, but it's it's a it's a, maybe a government requirement. But 
it's not a, a regulation of how they're made so much. So, uh, so I think you know if you just look at uh, other fields like, like Sarah said, other domains, uh, you'll find that um, uh, people accept regulation. But uh, so far, I'm speaking partly because we talked with uh, congressional uh, leaders and uh, staffers uh, in the the, the uh, tech policy uh, area. There. You can imagine that at least half of Congress doesn't want to regulate anything, and uh, so it's really a tough battle. So you really have to kind of use a spectrum of risk. So if you're worried about getting the wrong recommendations for movies to watch, you know, that'll sort itself out. But when it comes to, uh, you know, life-threatening systems, uh, then the more people will be in favor of regulation. Okay. Yeah. So... I can add my point of view as a technologist, not, of course, perspective from the regulatory and the policy. I really think there are two things in my head that when we are talking about regulation and policy, it kind of depends on what type of product you're talking. For example, there are definitely high risk and the low risk. If it is a low risk product based on like entertainment, I think we could be like, okay, regulation, not too much we care about. But definitely for highest tech product, we have to be very much careful what we are. So first of all, we have to have a way that product needs to go through certain regulation or policy base. We should have that. And of course, after having gone through all the steps that requires and then approve it, or even like a beta version, approve that, get feedback from the user and seeing the data then like a final phase, it, it could be like a deploy in a bigger scale. If it is a higher stake application that has, that could bring really negative impact to human's life. So that's my two cents as a technologist. I definitely want to see that in future uh, that we have certain things in place. So yeah. I would just kind of jump in and say maybe th there's also other opportunities beyond government. Right. Like we have like standards that are created by like members of the academy and then by certain companies that give these checklists or give sure. kind of the stamp of approval. Mm -hmm. And so if we can kind of develop some standards for what it takes to be a human-centered design or whether it's using good fair practices, then having like a stamp of approval and then knowing that that gets you know, adopted maybe more often than the ones that aren't. Maybe it could be kind of not not look to the government, which is sure. typically a slow, bureaucratic, yeah. not technical expert, you know, field. So. On that note, like uh, when you said human-centered design, I would like to add a little bit on that. So um, AI, if you think about the whole life cycle of AI, it's just not like the model building part. Most of the time people think, well, when you're going to have this model or algorithm, we need to think about the ethical aspects, whether there is a bias or anything. But it's really start from when you have a problem in your hand, uh, think about like the design perspective. What are the data you're going to collect? Who are the people or anything you're going to collect the data from? So on that step, you need to think through how much data you really need. The, as a researcher, I can tell people has this tendency, let's gather like all of this data set. We'll see what can we do later on. On. That's not a really good attitude. Uh, so in terms of design thinking, definitely think it through what are the things you have, like you need, get those things in, and then that's like the data collection part. And then your algorithm is there, definitely is a huge part. 
Testing should be there, humans, like a, the user experience, or we need to think about what is the best thing for the human, whether they are going to get benefited on that. We have to always think about that throughout the process. So basically embedding ethical aspects are practiced throughout the AI lifecycle. So that's really important to like uh, having this check, like that the first checkbox. And then if we do that, I'm sure the risk is going to be significantly minimized. And of course, the regulator on top of that could be there as well. Mm -hmm. And most of the time after deployment, people think this is the last step. We have deployed our product, that's it. That's it. But to be honest, after deployment, how end user is using the system, bias can get into the as a feedback loop. And we need to monitor that how it's behaving and then if we see something, definitely need to fix that before it's too late. Yeah, so that's another point. Could I uh, pick up on that uh, for a second? Go for it. Okay, uh, so um, um, the, I think it's a, you know, it's an example of what can go wrong over chat GPT, but it's also other AI products. I, was talking with a marketing person at a big tech firm the other day who said, uh, I asked, uh, are, are you worried about people taking your high-level products, you know, the ones where anybody could just take data and throw it in there and get a result, um, that they might misuse it or not know how to use it, and they didn't know really what to say. Uh, you know, just things, it seemed like it could be bad publicity for one thing if somebody uh, blames uh, the product that they use for getting a bad result. Uh, but um, it seems like the companies ought to want to give guidance to people on uh, what data is appropriate for different tools. And that's one of the big problems that uh, we, need, we know this from data science, too. That's not just students, but all of us like to throw data at a product, at an application, and then uh, see what comes out. And, and it's what we like, and it seems to have worked. Uh, but that's just a joke. Um, but anyway... We do teach uh, good practices in data science of having high quality data, uh, data that's applicable to what you're trying to uh, to do with the application. And that's not, uh, I don't think, common enough in the, uh, in, the in society where people uh, make sure the data is good and that it's being used with the right application. Well, I wonder if at this point, since we're about 15 minutes from the end, if you would like to, I'll take some questions from the audience, because it's always interesting to see where audience members are, you know, going with these things. And there are some microphones going around. So if you have a question, just wait for the mic to come for you. And that'll make sure the folks online can hear as well. Sounds good. Great. Do you think the... Um, medical community is using AI right now because there's no staff, there's no providers, there's nobody in radiology office, there's, there's basically nobody behind the diagnosis. Um, so that's one thing, and boy, they're making a lot of money not hiring a lot of people, um, and you talk about regulations, there's nobody who can afford a lawyer to sue anybody for making a non-diagnosis. And prior to this, um, we've had 
teams uh, where nurse practitioners and this and that would be involved as well as different medical systems like endocrinology and, and such. Um, as far as like Kaiser Permanente and Sloan Kettering and the Mayo Clinic. Um, and that was supposed to support diagnosis, also cloud sharing and things like that. But that basically is more expensive. So when you're talking about regulating, you're talking about the bottom line, and that's in the arts and entertainment and everything, is that whatever people can get away with. And, and, and what do you think about that? <laughs> Classic question. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, there, so I do think it's complicated. I think that when hospital system administrators adopt tools with the intention of these promises of accurate and faster, then the expectation is that it can replace humans, but it doesn't, I'm not sure what you mean by there's no one in the radiology rooms or there's no one behind it, um, because I, I, I see there are people still there, but for now, and maybe we're thinking in the future, but for now it's, it's still run by humans. We have a lack of, you know, there's a mess of healthcare right now and a lack of funds to hire people and to staff and to take care of the patients we do have. So. I, I guess that's one reaction to you. I don't think I answered exactly your question. I do think with regards to the teams that usually come together for diagnosis, it's completely lacking in, um, so, so this is something I wrote about, you know, write about in terms of the, the ground truth that gets captured to train the machines. And there's a big difference between probably this, the ideal ground truth that Larry's talking about what, what we teach in school versus what's available, what the vendors can just get. And um, what gets lost when you lose out on this rich dialogue and the communication, and not only do you not have good ground truth, but you lose training and co-training and kind of building this community of practice that we're used to being facilitating our healthcare environment. So um, I think it's, there's, there's a lot of risks and you've named a few. I, I don't, I'm not exactly advocating for the use of AI so, uh, in this context without a lot of uh, you know, careful thought. So I'm, I'm sensitive to what you're, what you're saying as well, but I don't have the answers. <laughs> Any other thoughts? <laughs> I, I don't know, so just one comment. I think, um, I think earlier I have mentioned uh, AI and human needs to work together. It's not really the intention uh, AI is going to replace a human in general. Uh, the nature of the job could change, but we, I think from my point of view, uh, we will be very successful when we learn to work together as a team. Um, so I'm really looking forward to, to see that in future, to see that AI is going to, for example, as a human, we have very good intuitive and everything, and machine can parse so many data and give the suggestions. And think about these two when it's combined, because we're not, we cannot really uh, process millions of data in uh, five, 10 minutes, we ne need some time. So if you combine these two characteristics, it's really strong. So hopefully in future, we'll see this more and be successful. Mm -hmm. Especially in healthcare, where it needs Yeah, it. I know, healthcare, yes. Hey, uh, you mentioned uh, in the this just now in this discussion of 
workforce, at least that's the way I interpret some of it. And that's another big issue that, you know, we could spend uh, quite a bit longer talking about. Uh, but, um, you know, and, uh, and, and Parhana mentioned the intention, and uh, that's a really important thing is people who develop systems, you know, if they're human-based, they, they have a different intention than if they're just purely a profit-based. So um, if you make a product with the idea that you will replace people, uh, that's a whole different uh, story, you know, and an impact on society. Uh, now, you'll hear big tech companies say, oh, for all the, we're going to lose a lot of jobs, but we're going to produce even more. Uh, that, that sounds good, but the trouble is, uh, are the new jobs going to be um, available to the people who lose their jobs uh, and at the same pay? Or will they have to take a, a cut in pay? Uh, and so that's not discussed very much, but it's a real problem. And it's a problem for not only universities, but companies, you know, do they have some responsibility to uh, prepare workers for the new jobs of the future, uh, uh, maybe working with unions or community groups. So anyway, I just wanted to put in a plug for that big issue of workforce, because that's a big part of society. Yeah, that kind of reminds me a little bit of the, you know, mimetic quip that has been going around where people say, you know, I don't think the future that we wanted was machines writing poetry and doing art while people work in mines and meat processing plants and so on. <laughs> and so um, with that, let's get to the next question, though, so we have enough time. Um, okay, yeah, um, that actually overlaps pretty big with the question I had. Since AI is actually best at doing the jobs at the top of our society. Um, and one of the earlier speakers today had talked about the deflationary effects of the adoption of this technology. How do you see incentivizing people who are in positions of authority with pretty decent paying jobs to eliminate their role in society? And what kind of transition plan might society have for such people um, so that their change in role isn't as contentious as the removal of, say, feudal management was uh, the last time we had a major technological shift. Um, uh, that, yeah, what, what would you sort of say to that? How do you get doctors and CEOs and lawyers and regulators to recognize that they can't do their jobs anymore, but computers could? Um, and like, how do you retrain people like that to do something of value to society? That's a really interesting question and sort of two questions in one, right? Because the first question, or I would say implied question is, is AI actually better at doing a lot of these things at the top levels of society? That has not quite been proven yet. And then the second question or the second part of the question is, uh, assuming it is or soon will be, how do you get people to essentially um, step away from their jobs and their livelihoods and their access to uh, medical care and health insurance in the United States, because that's tied to our jobs, uh, in favor of essentially more automation doing their work instead. 
we could also look around and say yeah. it's also professors and it's also, I mean, there's, we have a lot of people. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, to the first question, I don't think it's yet at, at that point. I think a lot of getting to, back to Larry's point is um, so thinking about the difference between sort of task-specific expertise and then the like a job or someone's profession. Um, I would say there's a big difference between changing the nature of you know physicians' work or professors' work versus replacing the whole category of that job. At least not in the next you know, generation, potentially beyond. I'm not a tech, you know, futurist, but I would say also to remember for the, you know, we have these in, uh, institutions in our world that have a lot of inertia and that have a lot of power. And so if there is a contingency of, of people with a lot of power and with a lot of historical inertia, it does take a lot to change these societal structures. So um, I think it would have to be something pretty revolutionary to convince certain groups to give up their seat at the, you know, at the table. But, and I'm not, I don't have any answers to how to exactly do that. We could look to, yeah, others. <laughs> yeah, I can add a little bit on that. So I think the nature, I, it's just my point of view, nature of the job, maybe like shifting from one to another, but that person is going to hold the position. For example, I think Georgia Tech, if I remember correctly, they have a robot, like a chatbot type of TA, teaching assistant. So think about if I am a, like an instructor, especially if I teach in a school, you have a lot of students, right? Right now, they struggle all the time to prepare the questionnaire, the quiz, and checking these papers and doing a lot of other administrative jobs. Uh, and then really, they do not have much time to work with students, motivate them, or, or other things they're supposed to do. Majority time involved with a lot of other works. So think about if there is a AI-based robot or some sort of system is there to help that person, then what will happen? He or she can get more time to work with their students and guide them. They, they need that. So right now, sometimes we just overlook because they're doing so many other things. Just go to the class, do the lecture, and that's how it is. So definitely, they will be the teacher, but their nature of the work shift a little bit. So as true, I think, for the doctors in a way, because they're very busy with, again, administrative or looking at the report, so many, like their past history, and then come up with the, like, okay, this is maybe the diagnosis can come with the verdict, right? But if there is a helping AI system, that already has done a lot of like uh, works in terms of looking at their previous history and suggest, well, based on that, it, it's kind of part of explainability to explain because of this, this past history, I am saying this person has uh, like a XYZ disease. This is my diagnostic. Now doctor will think, hmm, let me see. It kind of makes sense. If he's aligned with that, then he can go with, well, this is something you happen. And then that person could spare time to talk to the patient because when patient really likes that, if they have really some severe disease, they need that like a time, they, well, they require that time, not necessarily a doctor could provide it, but if an AI system can be done, like a, do all this job, definitely he can use that time to work with patients or talk to the patients. So that could be like another change. But definitely I can see the nature will change in near future, but not really replace only. So of course, that's the perspective I have. Great. Larry, um, 
Did Larry have some start? Oh, I was saying it's interesting to use data here. Um, Technology is changing so quickly, and I mean, ChatGPT is is not a year old yet. I think in terms of the hype, uh, but it still takes uh, twelve years or ten years, depending on how you want to look at it, to produce a, a worker in the AI workforce. Uh, that that number hasn't changed, but the technology keeps coming in faster and faster. Hmm. So we're getting pretty close to the end here. So I, I want to thank you all for the conversation today and maybe just offer a sentence or two of concluding thoughts. Um, one of the things that came to mind as you were giving your last round of comments is, you know, Throughout this, there's been sort of this unspoken assumption. We, we tend to assume rationality and linearity in our technologies and our process of societal change. And that's very often not the case. I'm speaking as a historian because that, that's my field, history of technology. And I think maybe, and this is what I'm hearing from all of you, as we're thinking about the future, we really need to keep that aspect of the past and the present in mind as we attempt to supposedly outsource intelligence or even trying to speed up the pace of technological and social change, not necessarily knowing exactly where that endpoint or even some of the waypoints along that line are going to be. So thank you so much uh, for being here today. I'm going to... Um, mentioned that immediately after this session, there's a short break, and then there's going to be another session, a combined session here in the ballroom, that's going to be a discussion on generative AI in teaching and learning. And I hope that um, all of you will join me in thanking our speakers, and thank you to the audience as well. Thank you.